Satellites gone up to the skies Things like that drive me out of my mind I watched it for a little while I like to watch things on TV Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of Satellite's gone way up to Mars Soon it'll be filled with park and cars it for a little while I love to watch things on TV I can't believe that Transformer that album by Lou Reed is 50 years old today that satellite of love and actually, that song's even older than that. It was composed back in 1970 when Lou Reed was still in Velvet Underground. Um, also, of course, we're playing that one because it's not Perfect Day or Walk on the Wild Side. And I actually got laughed at in the office when I suggested that we played either of those. Um, there is a harder rock version of the song than that one. Um, this one, though, from Transformer was produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson. Ronson's on piano and recorder. Bowie's on the backing vocals on this track. And, of course... It's all about space, isn't it? Which, um, well, is there anything more David Bowie than space? I'm not sure. His fingerprints are all over this track. And it seems suitable as well, of course, because of the lunar eclipse tonight. Mars in the sky. It's going to be one of four red things you can see up in the sky tonight. 50 years old, Connor. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, like, well, Velvet Underground, we're a great band, or, you know, and uh, used to listen to them in the 80s, and that was a day or two ago. Just a bit. Every time there is another one of these, like, oh, this album's just turned 25 or 30 or 50, whatever it is, it makes me feel older and older, Andrew. There's probably a reason for that, isn't it? <laughs> I love getting older and older. I enjoy my age <laughs> and I enjoy all the things that I got to enjoy to get up to here. <laughs> Excellent. You, you wonder how many of today's songs will last 50 years in terms of enjoyability and currency. Amongst, yeah. the, amongst the younger no, population in 50, in 50 I, th- I think they probably years. will. You know, I, I have hope for the music of today in the same way as that I love the music of yesteryear as well. Mm. Yeah, my kids make me listen to it, and there's mm. some really good stuff out there. So I think, you know, we should just embrace whatever we feel comfortable with. Yeah. Talk to that, absolutely. Lots of you getting in touch <laughs> with us on the panel with your hitchhiker stories. Uh, this one says... It's from Sam. Thanks for getting in touch, Sam, on 2101. It says, as a woman in her 50s, I'm possibly the last person you'd expect to be picking up hitchhikers. But I regularly do, especially in the summer. There's more of them about. I have caveats, though. I only pick up people on main roads when there are plenty of other cars about. I only pick up young people who are backpacking. 
they can be serial killers too. Um, I never pick up anyone at night, she says. I never pick up anyone walking with their back to me. I never open the door till I'm 100% sure I want to let them in. That's fair enough. I keep my bag, wallet and phone inaccessible. I've never had a problem. I've met some amazing, inspiring young adventurers from all around the world and I've missed them this past couple of years. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Also, this one, um, living in the tourist spot of Golden Bay, beautiful Golden Bay. I used to pick up hitchhikers almost every day over the summer. Great way to meet new people from all over the world, a chance to share some local knowledge. Yesterday, just yesterday, I was excited to see a thumb out on the side of the road again for the first time in two years. Long live hitchhiking. Long live hitchhiking, indeed. Um, on the city mission and trying to sell out Sky Stadium on December the 21st, GT says, I predict they will sell out and announce a second night. It's a genius idea. Um, also on phone calls, this person says, give me a phone over video calling every day. With a voice call, I can actually concentrate on what's being said rather than being distracted by grainy video and awkward picture angles. Maybe it's like... TV over radio or radio over TV, mm. as I would say. What do you think? 2101, let us know. It's 22 minutes to five. You're listening to the panel. Um, the planet, of course, is sending distress signals, it seems like, on a daily basis. And, of course, that is the warning, this distress signal, coming from the UN Secretary General This as the COP27 climate change conference gets underway in the desert of Egypt. More than 120 world leaders gathering at that summit. It kicks off a fortnight of negotiations on climate action. Back home, some councils are urging ministers to adopt a before-disaster-strikes approach for protection of flood-vulnerable communities. Let's talk about this with Michael McCartney, Regional Chief Executive's Group Convener, also Chief Executive at Horizons Regional Council. Kia ora, thank you for being with us. Kia ora. I was intrigued, Susie, how are you going to segue from Lou Reed to hitchhikers to... uh TV and, and uh, telephones into flood protection. Did pretty well, I thought. It's all possible on the panel. <laughs> Every um, day. Afternoon <laughs> to Connor and Jenny. So, yeah, um, look, uh, the report that's come out uh, recently is, is of interest to the regional mm. councils. We're, we've been in the business for a long period of time. Um, catchment boards that preceded regional councils in 1989 um, were charged with flood protection, and we're definitely seeing uh, an added demand pressure and expectation around flood protection mm. among communities. Uh, and the big question for us is affordability. Yeah, so what are you actually calling for? Well, um, prior to 1989, government was a very active investor uh, in our river scheme protection works, stock banks and the like. Mm. Uh, and when uh, local government reform took place in 89, that investment essentially dried up. So government uh, went in other areas and we were left to carry on the investment and to give you a feel for the scale of investment, I'll, I'll use my own example. Mm. So um, the, the the cost of investment over the last 20 years has gone from about $150 million to close to a billion dollars worth of capital investment needed by communities for flood protection in my region alone. So if you scale that out to 16 regional and unitary councils, you get a feel for how much rate burden has been put on communities to fund increasing demand for flood protection. Mm. So essentially what we're asking for is government to co-invest with us, ask um, for a sum of $150 million to join the $200 million we're already investing this year and every year uh, to help keep those assets functional um, and work with us as a partner because mm-hmm. essentially government is, is a beneficiary of flood protection. You know, They have hospitals, they have roads, they have rail, and um, we're looking to government to come to the party and... Uh, 
and work with us and help resource communities that are stretched in terms of funding. And is the point here that it's cheaper up front to put money into flood protection than it is to have to use emergency funds to try to literally bail people out when the water oh, rises? Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's many case studies and examples of that and, and we look, need to look to just the West Coast and, and, and Bulla and, and the, the you mm. know, $14 million investment um, before the tragedy of a couple of years ago would have saved $100 million worth of damage. And we actually saw that this happening in Kaitaia where um, a $15 million investment actually avoided a $50 million cost. So there's a lot of work being done by the sector around the fiscal and treasury analysis on, on return on investment. And the numbers, the likes of Canterbury, are for every $1, essentially you get between $50 and $60 worth of benefit cost-wise. So there's no argument. Across New Zealand, um, there's $11 billion worth of value from flood protection to communities. So the, the numbers stack up. Mm. 2101, do we just need to bite the bullet on this and put the money in up front? Anjam Rahman, what do you think on this one? Because I reckon it's probably quite hard. I mean, even though people can see the benefit, it's quite hard, I would imagine, especially nowadays in current financial situation, to convince the government to spend money before any of the bad stuff actually happens. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is that that issue of prevention being better, but you know, for me, it's also about the bigger picture because really, this is where the climate change conversation comes in. Because actually, the prevention is mm. not just before disaster strikes, but actually um, reducing the number of events, and that's where you know COP twenty seven and these international negotiations are just so critical. Uh, and also, you know, in terms of what we're going to do locally um, is, is critical in that space as well. And um, this is where I'm going to use the line that Connor used is, is you know, what what is the corporate responsibility here and, and around privatising mm. profits and socialising the losses? Because our biggest emitter is Fonterra. And in fact, you know, there are six corporates that make up 50% of corporate emissions Um do they have a responsibility to front up with some money if they're taking the profits um, from emitting all this stuff and, you know, creating some of the problem, certainly not 100% of the problem by any means? Um, does does the public then um, have to be the ones that are funding it? And so, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of issues that are, are in place here. Mm. What do you reckon, Michael? Maybe ANZ yeah. would like to tip some money into your fund. <laughs> Excellent. We would appreciate that. I do think what we're talking about here, though, is that in the long term, we would hope that society shifts its thinking in 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, that the behaviours and the way we go about things addresses you know, the impacts from climate change, including flooding. But there's a period of real risk to communities now. And so we're looking for investment because infrastructure is always going to be needed. So ideally, some commentators might say, look, we should just you know, manage retreat. We should let rivers be wild. And that's true. But we need time to adjust as a community and a society to that. So in the meantime, we have people and communities and lives at risk. And we've been pretty lucky in this country that we haven't had the deaths that we've seen the likes across the Tasman and their flooding. Mm. Uh, so there's a real um, material risk here. So we're looking, we support all the initiatives around uh, the change to legislation, how we plan for communities and how we deal with emissions in the longer term. But there's a period between now and then when all that lands and we're all in the in the right shape that we need investment in infrastructure. Um, so look, I, I think it's a, it's everyone's responsibility, and at the moment, mm. the bulk of the cost is falling on ratepayers in, in the in the country. 
Prevention is better than cure, Connor. Well, I'm just um, the question I have of Michael is where does uh, the insurance sector fit into all this? Uh, how does that fit into um, remediating problems after they've um, happened, and 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 I guess the cost of subsequent insurance? Do you see them playing a, a more significant part or a lesser part as they yeah, pull look, back? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. And look, the insurance industry is very critical in this, and. I think their latest report does indicate there's been a 34% increase in weather-related claims in the last year alone. So, look, there's a a real serious issue. And I know insurance companies themselves are employing their own river engineers and do their own assessment on risk. And it is only a matter of time before communities won't be able to get insurance. But on the other hand, um, what we're seeing is perhaps insurance premiums matching risk. So people are prepared to pay Mm. higher amounts of premiums um, to stay where they are in risky areas. So the money will prevail, um, but I know there is um, concern probably internationally amongst reinsurers around the risk profile for New Zealand around natural hazards, and the number one natural hazard for this country is floods. Um, mm. You know, it's been like that, and we've had you know 11 major events in the last six or eight months. So, yeah, the insurance industry has a really active role to play, um, and if they could reinvest somehow back into protection, like the government, then there could be a win there. Thank you very much, Michael McCartney. There, from well, Horizons Regional Council, but also speaking as Group Convener of Regional Council Chief Executives, it is an interesting question about what is going to happen as regards flood protection. Is it going to end up being managed retreat? But what, of course, happens in the meantime? Let us know your thoughts on that one. Be interested here at the panel at rnz.co.nz. Now, of course, 40 minutes to five. Summer's on the horizon. Oh, everyone's beginning to plan their getaways. But if you're planning on hiring a car, that might be easier said than done. Earlier on this year, it was reported many companies had been forced to sell off their rentals when the pandemic hit. And of course, that is leaving depleted fleets that might not meet demand. Back in April, Thrifty General Manager Tony Mortensen said that while they'd normally have around 60,000 vehicles available over summer, this year they would be lucky to have half of that. Now, we wanted to get an update on this situation and to provide us with that, Ben McFadgen, Kiora, Rental Vehicle Association Chief Executive. Kia Susie, how are you? I'm well, thank you. But how are you and what shape are the rental companies fleets in? Well, um, we've been saying this for about 18 months, I guess, since uh, the pandemic really started to bite. And then you've had, obviously, with um, recent events in the Ukraine, they've all affected the supply chain for uh, vehicles, right? Light vehicles and heavy vehicles. Uh, and that's now starting to really bite in New Zealand. So, you know... We had heard earlier on uh, last summer, for example, that in Tasmania the price of rental cars was going up to, you know, even well over a thousand dollars a day, and there was a shortage. Um, mm-hmm. And that is directly as a result of, of, of COVID, right? So we've had obviously China um, have had issues with their uh, supply chain that they provide parts um, to the to the to the industry, the, the OEMs and the, the manufacturing industry, mm-hmm. and then you've got Ukraine with all your ECUs, so you're you know, your little switches and so on, your electrical control units. So things like even Audi Q7s, for example, are coming out with um, wind-down windows because they can't get the chips. So this is all starting to, to really flow through to New Zealand, and that's what we're experiencing now. So, I mean, the, the rental companies are trying to reflate, yes. Um, they've had... Uh, the thing with the, the industry is mm. the OEMs, for example, 
supply the private sales first, so residential sales and stuff, you know, first, and then mm. the rental vehicle industry gets the sort of the remainder. And New Zealand's a, a relatively small fish in an extremely big pond. So, in terms of um, you know what we we can request from these OEMs, they would they would you know supply Europe and and the states before they toddle their cars all over to the other side of the world to New Zealand. So, if that's the supply side of things, which isn't sounding too clever, what is the demand looking like? Yes, there are people, I mean, as we've had the season starting to kick off and obviously the borders have opened up, we've had more um, bookings coming in and people wanting to, to to rent, to travel around New Zealand and, you know, experience our, our fine country. And they're experiencing um, problems with getting hold of vehicles. Um, you know, I've got relatives, for example, over the summer that are coming over and they're, um, they've been struggling to find somewhere so, or find a, find a vehicle. Mm. So this is just, I think all we can say to people is book, you know, book well in advance and think well in advance before you want to travel. If you're going to be using a rental vehicle, um, make, you know, ensure that it's available. Rental Vehicle Association Chief Executives would tell me, though, to book well in advance, wouldn't they? Isn't that part of drumming up your business? <laughs> um, well, it's more a, a matter of mismanagement, just like your previous spokesperson. You know, it's um, it's assessing it's assessing the risk. If you've got a, if you're planning a holiday, it, it, it pays to to plan in advance and 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 just to be aware. The same way that um, you know, travelling around New Zealand at the moment with the the roadworks and so on, it's going to take longer to get places. We've mm. got problems with the labour shortage. These are all things that are happening as a result of a major event that's occurred around the world over the last two years, so or three years, right? And and, and it's going to take time to readjust. And obviously with things like the Ukraine and so on, the longer that goes on, yes, the OEMs find alternative places to, to manufacture their components, but this is all going to take time. Um, and, and I think it'll be really next season before things start, you know, really, really starting to improve. The rental vehicle agencies are doing what they can, and they're trying to get the fleet that they can, um, but it's it's it's... You know, this is just the way it is, unfortunately. Mm. So for this season, I guess there's not going to be a significant number of sort of more vehicles actually coming in at this stage. Have you have you got what you're going to get? Well, the the um, it's it's better than we thought it was going to be. Okay, so uh, a year ago we were thinking we'd be lucky to get to a fleet number of. Of, of half of what it is over the um, over the summer season, so you sort of you know mm. six, thirty thousand cars, right? We need about sixty. So, and and slowly but surely, the um, agencies are starting to reflect, but we're still well below what's what's needed. So you know we're, we're sort of in the mid mid thirties. Mm-hmm. So it's better than it was, and it is improving, and vehicles are coming in, but it will ta- but it is going to take time to catch up. So I guess if you can't get a rental car. Um what are your options, Connor? Hitchhiking? Uh, well, hitchhiking. You know, I've done a bit of hitchhiking, but uh-huh. you, you, I mean, a thousand dollars a day, you can get a lot of miles on an Uber for a thousand bucks a day, <laughs> and you don't I'm have to sure park the Uber it. drivers would appreciate that too. <laughs> so maybe, maybe it's going to be a boom for the Uber drivers. Maybe, Andrum. Um, you know, rental vehicles are pretty tricky things, um, but I guess people are going to be a bit stuck because this is one of the things about. New Zealand is that you can you can fly places you can car places you can't really train places so easily um, what options are people going to have 
Yeah, I mean, as someone who was lucky enough to go to San Francisco in July and then New York in September, um, really seeing the benefits of of a great public transport system, um, which, you know, I think that's where the investment is. And given that we've been talking about climate change today, really do we want to be putting more and more rental cars on the road? So, you know, in Europe and other places having you know, these bikes that you can just pick up as you can in big cities as well. Um, Better ride sharing, yes, Uber. Um, More use of tour companies and yes, of course, you lose your freedom. The the joys of a rental car is you pick up and you go where you want, when you want. But Mm. um, if that's not available, then how about supporting some of the tour companies, reducing our emissions, getting a little less time and a little less flexibility, but at least you're still getting to travel. Indeed. Thank you for getting in touch with uh, your hitchhiking stories this morning, uh, this morning, this afternoon, into RNZ National. Um, I suppose one thing to ask, Ben, is that if you you can't get a vehicle, especially if you can't find something affordable, what would you recommend people do? Um, As NJM said, there is some, um, you know, very viable public transport options for getting around New Zealand, and at the moment, the tour bus industry, for example, has um, you know they've they've suffered from no one coming over the borders for the last sort of three years. This is the first season we've had sort of unfettered um, you know arrivals from overseas. So there is the there are the bus bus tour companies, but at the same time, I have to temper that with the fact that we've got a labour shortage generally um, throughout New Zealand, and one of those industries which is affected is the bus and coach industry. Now, mm. tour companies are available, and, and, and it is a fantastic way, as Andrew said, to, to get around the company uh, country in a, um, in a decarbonised manner. It, it, you know, the emissions reductions from travelling on public transport and a mass transport like a bus are far far better than a private vehicle, but mm. some families prefer to self-drive. And, and it really does depend on the destination country that people come from, right? So... Uh, if they're from Australia, they might prefer to self-drive. That's kind of normal. But if they come from Europe or in America, then certainly tour buses. Um, I would urge Kiwis to experience what it's like to get on a tour bus if they're unab- unable to get a hold of a vehicle. Um, there are equally, though, there are, um, you know, there's the, the rental vehicle agencies like Avis and so on and mm. Hertz and, and Go Rentals and Easy Rentals. and, and All the rentals. You, all those ones, but there's a tier underneath it. There's there's the other tier of the um, cars, which are just as good. They might be sort of five years old um, and well-maintained, mm. and they're also available. So, yeah. mm. Have you ever been a hitchhiker, Ben? Have I been a hitchhiker? Yes, yeah. I have. I hitched around the country um, quite a bit when I was younger. I started when I was 12, believe it or not, um, up in the Bay of Plenty, just to have a look around at... Um, I was up there for, for work for uh, my father. He was um, an archaeologist, and I was um, bored. So I went around and had a look around uh, the Bay of Plenty at the age of 12. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. That is Ben McFadgen there on the panel, Chief Executive of the Rental Vehicle Association. It's five minutes to five already. Time flies when you're having fun. Let's talk about a hitchhiker of another kind. Because what do you do when a two and a half metre shark decides to make itself catch of the day on your boat? That is just what happened to Ryan Churches, owner of Churches Charters in Fithianga. He takes people out on his fishing vessel off the Coromandel. It's usually snapper or kingfish or blue nose that they're after. Now, they did manage to get a short video of the shark getting aboard. Now, we're going to have a wee listen. You can hear the shark hitting the nose of the boat, flopping around and trying to get back in the water. Oh, 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 oh,
Yes, that is a shark you can hear on a boat. You can check out the video on the Churches Charters New Zealand Facebook page. Well worth your time. The skipper, Ryan Churches, is with us on the panel. Kia ora. G'day, guys. How are you going? Really well. But um, this is not the usual, is it? No, this doesn't happen every day. There's um, something quite special in a way, I guess. And Yeah. What happened? So um, we're just fishing for our kingfish and um, winding a... A baiting that hadn't been taken by a kingfish, obviously, and um, it got taken by the Marco shark. Mm. Um, yeah, he he put on a great aerial display for us, and unfortunately, the aerial display got a little bit too close for us in the end. <laughs> so it, it it got kind of on the just on the front, just right in front of um, right in, right on the front, just by the the sort of windscreen, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, right, um, sort of laying up the side of the bow rail there. Um, we we thought it was out the side of the boat, but it obviously turned direction underwater and just um, come up and yeah. So you jump and you knew the shark was there. You just didn't expect the jump, the jaws moment. Yeah, yeah, we knew it was there, but we um, we we had him on the line. We knew he was on the line, but um, mm. we didn't. Um, yeah, no, he was going to jump on the front of the boat like that. <laughs> What's it like coming face to face with a shark? Um, it's it's something different, I suppose. Myself being on the water quite often as I am, that. Um, we uh, we can um, <laughs> sorry um, how to say it? we sort of get used to it in a way we see a lot few sharks here and there and whatnot and um, you know they are around and whatnot but the the customers actually handled a lot better than I thought they would. How did people react? Um, they were sort of chahooing a bit as you can hear in the video there, <laughs> yeah. and, and then it was sort of like you look at it and you're like oh wow that really happened. <laughs> The, the more you look at it, the weirder it sort of got. And, um, yeah, then he sort of slid off the front and away into the water again, swam away. So, A pretty close encounter, Anjum Rahman. Yeah, I, I would have been a screaming mess. Me and animals <laughs> don't do well together. I love them, as yeah. I've said before, but I don't like to be near them. What about you, Connor English? Have you ever come across something like this before? Uh, look, ever since I saw Jaws, I wasn't too keen on, on sharks, but I have yeah, seen sharks fishing out in the ocean like that, and they are scary. I, I don't want to be anywhere near them. Going to need a bigger boat. Skipper Ryan Churches of Churches Charters, thank you very much for being with us on the panel today. Also, of course, a big thank you to our panellists, Ngamihi to Connor English and also to Anjum Raman. Thank you for being with us today. Cheers. Wallace Chapman Thanks. is back with you tomorrow on RNZ National on the panel. Thank you very much for having me today. Thanks all of you for your company. Checkpoint next. Kakiteano. <laughs>